Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. We have to have our Republicans either stick together or let me just do it by myself. I'll do very well. Don't talk. Please be quiet. Just be quiet to the leaders. So that was Donald Trump saying, I want to go it alone. And you know, Jay calls to the Weekly Standard, looking at the latest polls, he's almost there. <laughs> he's almost down to support only from immediate friends, family, and employees. He's almost, he's almost enti- the only person left supporting Donald Trump. Is it really that bad? It's pretty bad, Michael. I mean, the real clear politics average right now has him at 38% overall. The last, uh, let's see, five polls, he hasn't cracked 40%. The Reuters poll has him at a whopping 32%. So, you know, that might be employees of, you know, Trump International Hotels or whatever. Uh, it's 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 pretty bad. Um, and then on top of that, you know, there's all these stories about how bad his fundraising is. And, you know, and more broadly, you know, like Q Hewitt had a piece in the in the Washington Post today suggesting and I thought it was you know, just a completely unrealistic suggestion that, you know, it's time for Trump to tone it down, get serious, create the contrast with Hillary Clinton and so on and so forth. But he's really Trump is first of all, let's operate under the assumption that Trump has the character to to uh, to, you know, rally that level of discipline, which I am convinced he does not. But let's just assume that he has it in him to do that. He's really set up for himself quite the catch-22. He has no fundraising infrastructure, so he's relying upon, quote-unquote, earned media coverage. But to sustain that coverage, he has to be outrageous. He has to say outrageous things. He has to perpetuate the Trump show to get eyeballs uh, on to, to the cable news network so the cable networks continue to cover his rally. So he really can't get serious. It's a very, very bad situation. Uh, but, Jay, you know, a lot of uh, Trump supporters will say, oh, that's just your opinion. You're just a, you know insider GOPE guy or whatever the fr- you know, phrase is. What right. about the data? For example, you mentioned his uh, his uh, uh, numbers. Well, isn't it true that George W. Bush was losing that badly or H.W. Bush or one of the Bush- – wasn't somebody losing that badly already? And besides, what about his surprising strength among Hispanic voters that we saw in the primaries? What about those numbers, Jay Cost? Right. Well, look, I mean, you can always point to a historical example, a one-off example of somebody rallying from behind. George W. Bush had a huge lead over Al Gore in 2000, and it evaporated. Jimmy Carter had a big lead at points over Ronald Reagan in 1980, and it evaporated in, you know, 76, you know, Dukakis in 88, et cetera, et cetera. But look, this is this is the problem with all of those, with, with comparing those past examples to the current situation, that Donald Trump is a known quantity in American politics, okay? He's not like Jimmy Carter in 1976, a fresh face, people are just getting to know and their initial impression of him is positive, but as the campaign goes on, Ford brings the Republicans home. It's not like that with Trump. And it is interesting, too, you talk about bring Republicans home. 
Donald Trump has already had a, a unifying shift, if you will. He had one a few weeks ago, and those were, that's when you had a handful of polls with him be, beating Hillary Clinton. Uh, so there's not a Republican come home. Republicans came home, looked around. They heard crazy Uncle Donald upstairs screaming and yelling about um, the Mexican or right. uh, saying bizarre things, trying to take a victory lap over the Orlando terrorist attack. And a bunch of them said, I'll go sleep on my friend's couch instead. That's that's what's happened. Talk about those negatives. I thought the number 70 percent on a disapproval. I've never seen anything like that. Jay cost. Yeah, that's that's right, Michael. I mean, it is unprecedented. And the way to think about this is it's not just 70, you know, whatever it is, 70 percent. It's always above 60. Um, It's not just that. It's that people know this guy. You know, these they have uh, people have opinions of him that are well formed. This is not like 1988 with Michael Dukakis or Jimmy Carter in 76, where they're new on the scene and people have an initial impression that they might revise at some point in the future. Opinions about Donald Trump. Donald Trump has been on the national scene for 30 plus years. Um, You know, impressions of him are locked in. So. You know, people who who think Trump can turn this around need to answer this question. How? What does he say to people who already dislike him? What does he say to them? What does he say to people who dislike Hillary Clinton kind of on a scale of one to ten? They're like at a six or seven or, you know, maybe better put like a three or four about Hillary Clinton. But they're like a zero or one about Trump. What does he say to them? Considering that those impressions of Trump have been formed not overnight, but over the course of literally 20 plus years. What does he say? You And that even gets – that doesn't even address as we discussed a moment ago the fact that I don't think the man has the capacity to say that thing even if that thing exists. Hmm. He doesn't have it in him. He is a reckless, shoot from the hip, fast and loose kind of guy who, who – who, makes it up as he goes along and making it up as he went along was sufficient to win, you know, 44 and a half percent of the vote in the Republican Party primary against a divided field. But now he's going to, you know, in so doing, he alienated two thirds or three fifths of the country. And now he's staring down the barrel of a billion dollar gun that Clinton and the Democrats are putting the finishing touches on. So then let me ask you the, the, the second part of our conversation which is, let's say that when July 18th arrives and Republicans look out and they see Trump you know, still in the low 30s, they see not a lot of money behind him, they see uh, Kirk, Portman, Ayotte all you know, swirling down the train in the U.S. Senate, the U.S. Senate is lost. They see numbers like we're seeing right now where the generic ballot is Republicans minus 11 versus Democrats, would you, you know, generally speaking, do you want the Republicans or Democrats to win? We're minus 11, which is the territory you get into when you start putting the House in danger. So the White House is gone. The Senate is gone. Maybe the House is gone. Will, uh, I don't want to ask Will, because that's speculation. If the Republican Party decides they don't want to commit political suicide with Donald Trump. <laughs> if they decide they want to open nominations back up, number one, can they, Jay Cost? And number two, how would that actually work? And who who would be the person that could make that decision, could pull the trigger and say, yes, we're going to throw things open? 
Yeah, uh, those are good questions. First, let me just say, you know, a couple months ago, we did a podcast where we talked about Trump's general election sort of prospects. And, you know, we kind of we discussed, oh, you know, is this Dole? Is this Mondale? And we sort of speculated that, no, this could be worse. We shouldn't assume that this guy has a floor. And I think we're starting to see that now, Michael. And we're seeing it in an interesting way, like that. It's almost in, in response to the Orlando shooting and the typical, you know, the argument that the two sides have. You know, the Republican side isn't making an argument uh, because Donald Trump is the head of the Republican Party now or the head, the chief messenger of the Republican Party, and he's not capable of making arguments. So what happens to a political party when it goes into an election where its chief candidate is incapable of making an argument to the voters? What is the down ballot carnage in that scenario? You know, it, whatever you want to say about Bob Dole in 1996, and Lord knows the Trump people on Twitter like to c- criticize Dole for losing that. At least Dole was out there making the case. You know, it's the same thing with Mitt Romney in 2012 or even Walter Mondale in 1984. You know, Mondale lost, but you go you go and watch his convention speech at the at the Cow Palace in, in San Francisco. He's out there making an argument. Trump is not capable of that. So the question really where his where's his floor? I don't think we can look to history. So if the Republicans in Cleveland, you know, come to their senses and realize that there is no floor. The answer to your questions are yes, they can do something about it. And there's two ways they can do something about it. First of all, the Rules Committee could simply change the rules of the Republican Party. Rule 16 governs the uh, binding of delegates on the floor of the convention to uh, the results of the primaries and the caucuses. However, Rule 16 is, is a rule that it expires. Rule 16 expires the moment the Cleveland Convention is banged into session, is gaveled into session. If the Rules Committee does not approve a renewal of Rule 16, then the delegates will be free. And let me just stop right there because I think this was helpful for me to understand it in reading your work at the Weekly Standard, Jay, is – and it makes sense if you think of it this way. Every convention makes its own rules. That's how right. the party stays dynamic. You know, was, right. we're not using the rules of 1860. Every convention makes its own rules. It's part of the tradition. They've done it every four years since 1856. And they can do it this year. And that so the convention could say, here's what our rules going to be. Everybody come in and cast your best vote or they could do something else. Right. The way to the way to think about the Republican convention is the way the Constitution empowers the House of Representatives. The Constitution gives the House of Representatives complete sovereignty over its own rules and procedures and complete sovereignty over admittance of members into the into the body. Okay? So what that means is is that a previous a previous house cannot write a rule that a subsequent house cannot overdo. Right. Okay. Now, if the house is going to pass a law, you know, they pass a law, it goes on to the Senate, signed by the president. You know, if the house wants to change that law, they have to get the approval of the Senate and the president. But when it comes to the rules of the house, the house is completely sovereign. It's the same principle with the Republican convention. The body of members of delegates on the floor of the convention are sovereign on all matters before it. That includes the presidential nominee, the vice presidential nominee, the party platform, and the setting of the temporary rules between the end of one convention and the beginning of another. But Jay, this is the argument I've heard, which is that's all true. 
But it takes a leader to step forward and get enough delegates together to say, here's what our strategy is going to be. Who is that leader? Is it by definition Paul Ryan as the chairman of the convention? Is, is it, would it be a political grassroots movement? I mean, what, what would it take from a standpoint of the rules? And then what do you think it would take politically to open the convention up? Honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> um, we're well, really not a great podcast. I apologize, ladies and gentlemen. I um, asked Jake. Well, look, the there's, a, there's a, look, look, I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I hope that my, if I explain my ignorance, it will have some insight. <laughs> it's the best I can <laughs> best I can say in advertising myself. But look, um, why don't I know? Because look, I, I, I have put a lot of, uh, you know, uh, one of my sort of, you know, areas of interest over the years has been the party nomination process. I've spent a lot of time reading about it. I know a lot of history. Um, I know how the rules work. I know all that stuff. This is unprecedented. Okay. This has never happened. What we are talking about is unprecedented in 200 years, almost 200 years of party nominations. Okay. The closest maybe we could come to would be the 1912 Republican convention where Teddy Roosevelt won going away. He won the, um, the, the primaries, uh, but Taft won the nomination anyway. But look, Taft was an incumbent president of the United States. He had all the patronage and all the power and all the authority and all the sort of right. capacity for moral suasion that comes with being president of the United States. TR was effectively trying to take the nomination away from an incumbent president, which really very rarely happens. What we're talking about here is a very different scenario, and there's really no corollary to it. So I don't know. Does it require a leader? Yeah, maybe it does. But look, I'm not. Maybe not. I don't know. Look, if this could happen from the from the from the bottom up, if you study, you know, I mean, it's a weird conventions are weird things, Michael. I mean, a lot of times and we haven't seen this really in our lifetimes. Right. I mean, people maybe you can kind of make a comparison to 76. No, but, you know, if you read if you read the history of conventions, you know, a lot of times there's this sort of. For lack of a better word, there's like almost a mob psychology that can take over, okay? Um, you know, where there's a deadlock for a long period of time, but then suddenly the deadlock breaks and everything floods. That, that happened a lot back in the 19th century. And, you know, that a lot of times, you know, like for instance, in the 1880 presidential nomination, on the Republican side, the Republicans were deadlocked between James G. Blaine and Grant, and somebody put into I don't know who you know nominated or or entered into the you know formal consideration Garfield right. James A. Garfield Garfield was not behind that there was no Garfield maneuvering but that just it like lit right. it lit the fuse and it just moved from there so. You know, that that would be an exa- that would be a contrary example to to what you're sketching out where it could be bottom up too. Look, I don't know. I don't, we are so far outside. I mean, I I had suggested to people a couple of months ago that, you know, you didn't need it didn't matter how many pledged delegates Trump won. I mean, I'm talking like back in February, March, I right. I was pitching to people the idea that they could that the convention could do whatever they wanted. And people told me you're crazy. That's nuts. It's never going to happen. And here we are talking about it. We are so like this is like Alice. We are Alice, and we are through the looking glass. We are into Wonderland. I don't know what's going to come next. You know, 
I, yeah, that's a great way to put it. And one of the last thing I would add is we're in the situation now, Jay, where you have a major party nominee who is consistently polling in the low 30s and has consistently, you know, repeat, I should say not consistently, but repeatedly been in the low 30s. And I saw a piece uh, in the last 24 hours where someone went back at this point in polling. And of course, you know, we poll more now than we did in the past. You, know, so you can't, it's not a one for one point, but you couldn't find anybody who was the major party nominee at this point in the process. That is, they had, you know, the, the field had been seated that had polled in the low 30s more than, you know, four, five, six times. Right. <laughs> Trump has repeated you know, dozens and dozens of times Trump has right. been in the low and mid 30s. And right. there's just no way. So I ask you to answer a purely political question. Do the Republican delegates have the courage to see the train coming to them and stand up and do the hard, painful work for four days to avoid the humiliation of four months? Or do you think that just that psychology you mentioned will make it easier just to say, look, I didn't vote for the guy. I didn't want the guy, but this is who we got. I'm not going to go home and get yelled at by crazy Trumpies. We're just going to give them the nomination and then get in the, you know, the, the you know, open our survivalist basement and open up our potted meats and water and wait for the radiation to blow right. over sometime in 2017. <laughs> Which right. one is going to be four days of pain or four months of anguish? Yeah, that's that's the question. Look, I think that, um, you know, this gets back to something we talked about a moment ago with this idea that the, the guy doesn't have a floor. Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 this is not Mondale in 84. This is not McGovern in 72. This is not Goldwater in 64. The guy's not capable of making an argument. So, you know, the question then becomes is what does the Republican Party do Going into an election where the only side that's making an argument is the Democratic Party. I think that that's what we're looking at right here. Everything gets drowned out and all we hear is Trump's inane jibber jabber and Hillary's demagoguery. We're seeing that exactly with the Orlando the Orlando thing. The Democrats are basically own the field almost by default on this argument about gun control versus, you know, terrorism. Right. The, the Republicans aren't even making an argument. And I think the question is you saw you mentioned earlier that Reuters Ipsos generic ballot thing, right? Where and look, we've seen and we're all we've also seen this. So this has spillover effects. That's the question. Yes. Will it have spillover effects that Trump's inability to make the argument for conservatism and the Republican Party and the principles of that party? Will it have spillover effects? Uh, you know, that Reuters Ipsos poll is a sure is it is an early indicator that it is going to have spillover effects. And we also see it with Obama's job approval rating. You know, today, I think today was the first day in over two years that Barack Obama's job approval was above 50 percent. Why? Is it because the economy's getting better? No, the economy's not getting better. In fact, the job market seems to have cooled off. Is it because we're safer in the world? Absolutely not. We all realize now that the Iran deal is a disaster for us. ISIS is, you know, sympathizers with ISIS have have a body count that is almost in triple digits now over the last six months. You know, the country is not better off. You look at the right track, wrong track numbers, people don't think they're better off. So why is Obama doing better? It's because the only argument that anybody is able to make about the problems with Obama is coming from Trump. And compared to Trump, Obama looks pretty gosh darn good. And if Republicans on the ground, you know, in the states and congressional districts and state legislative districts, if, if they begin to perceive that 
this is going to affect them too. If, if that sense is pervasive by the time the Cleveland convention convenes in July over the next month, if it's, if it, if the sense is not only that Trump is going to lose, but he's going to take us down with him, then that's going to change the calculus, Michael, because you asked me if there was a question of courage, right? That right. was your question. Well, what I'm talking about, and I mean, it's usually an easy bet, by the way, that politicians are, you know, if you want courage, go talk to a soldier. Exactly. If you want trimming, go, if you want self-interested trimming, go talk to a politician. But it's possible that might not be the right question to ask in July. If the, if the delegates on the floor who are going to be, I don't want to call them party inside or establishment people is sort of in reference to K Street. But if there are people who they're plugged into their state and local political parties, if there's a sense then that the party at, at that level is going to suffer, then it's not going to be a question of courage. It's going to be a question of self-interest, which might be which is which is when we're taught when we're trying to predict the behavior of politicians that's always the way to go is to look at their self-interest so you know if we continue to see obama's job approval increase if we continue to if we continue to see trump polling in the in the 30s um and it, it look if we see other generic ballot numbers like that reuters one then they, they, you know the delegates are probably going to start hearing from their their friends and their neighbors um and and state politicians like hey this is it we're gonna get wiped out here uh and they might do it i don't know maybe they will jay Cos, thanks so much for joining us for this podcast we really appreciate your insights and your passion my pleasure, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.